Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming. I threw a little hissy fit and behaved badly when they told me I could only talk to the poetry students. So now here you are with me. That's why. Anyway, um, I'm really glad I, I like to talk about poetry. And I wanted to talk to you about um, what I think is involved in, in reading poetry, not about writing poetry so much, but about reading it. Parenthetically, I believe that writers are readers who've spilled over and that when we're talking about reading, we're also talking about writing. That people write out of their own experience, but they also write because they're incited by what they've read. And the difference between a person who's writing poems and someone who becomes a poet is the poet has been incited by what he or she has read and wants to respond in kind and has been companioned by poetry. And I think that's true in all the arts. Um, a painter is not just someone who has a world inside her and wants to paint. A painter is also a person who fell in love with painting by looking at other paintings. So my teachers were, you're too young to remember, but my teachers were something called new critics. And new criticism was a form, a mode of reading poetry in which all the meaning was located in the text. And this form of close reading through new criticism really taught us how to read poetry. And they, the new critics were, were in love with uh, irony, paradox, tension, all new critical terms that located the meaning in the text. And I really learned how to learn how to, how to read difficult poems from this method, but I thought there's something wrong with it. And the thing that's wrong with it is that it locates the meaning in the text, not in the reader. And I believe that the meaning is not in the text itself. The meaning is in the contact that's made between the poem and the reader. And there's a relationship that's established between the poet, the poem, and the reader. And the poem doesn't fully exist when it's in a book or in an anthology. It fully exists in the contact that's made um, with a reader. That's why for the reading of poetry, instead of in the beginning was the word, I prefer Martin Buber's notion, in the beginning is the relation. The relation precedes the word because it's authored by the human. Now, I just want to say parenthetically, I've just turned the reading of poetry into a Jewish activity <laughs> from a Christian one. I just want you to know I didn't want it to go unnoticed. Um, uh, didn't want it to slip by and go, I think he's been Judaizing on us uh, later. I just want to put it out front there. Um, so um, my idea, it's not entirely mine alone. I have many precedents in thinking this way. And one of my main ones is a great Holocaust poet named Paul Salon. And he said, a poem is a message in a bottle sent out in the not always greatly hopeful belief that somewhere and sometime it would wash up on land on Heartland, perhaps. So the poem is a message sent out towards some unknown person. And when that unknown person reads it, the message gets released. Now, Mandel, he's, um, Salon is picking up on something that he read from a great Russian poet named Osip Mandelstam. And in 1916, Osip Mandelstam wrote a piece called On the Addressee. And he says in this piece that he goes down to the shore and a reader, a person, a wanderer goes down to the shore and finds an unlikely looking bottle from the past and he opens it. And then he says amusingly, it's okay to do so. I'm not reading someone else's mail. It was sent out to whoever found it. I found it. 
therefore it was addressed to me. And I hope all of you have had this experience that you suddenly encounter a poem and you feel as if it were addressed to you. And that secret addressee of the poem is part of the nature of lyric poetry. One of the things that's most amazing about lyric poetry to me is that the contact that you make with a lyric poem establishes you in a more intimate relationship with the poet who wrote it and the poem, the experience, than the people around you. That is something that's so mysterious about this is that this contact, this exchange, opens up your inner life in a way that your social contact does not. And this has always been something mysterious about poetry to me. And I remember the first time that this I encountered this. Um, I was going. I was at college. I was at Grinnell College. I was reading poet. I was writing poetry. I wasn't reading much. I had a teacher who was, you know, very generous to me and started giving me things to read. And I hadn't heard of anything. And so whenever someone mentioned a poet, I would go and read it. Which, by the way, I recommend to you. If you do that for 50 years, you do learn something. Um, so someone had mentioned Gerard Manley Hopkins. I'd never heard of him. I went to the library. Went back to my dorm room. I opened this book and I found something called the Terrible Sonnets. And one of them begins, I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. What hours, oh, what black hours we have spent this night. What sights you heart saw, ways you went, in more must in yet longer lights delay. With witness I speak this. Where I say hours, I mean years, mean life. And my lament is cries countless, cries like dead letters sent to dearest him who lives, alas, away. I am gall, I am heartburn, and so it goes. Well, this just completely devastated me. And the thing about it that was so striking to me was I was reading this desolate poem, and instead of feeling more desolate, I felt better. And I felt better because it had articulated something inside of me, some despondency that I had, but I could not name. And I recognized myself in this poem. Now, two things happened. I thought, I want to do that. I want to be like that. I want to do that for someone else. And then I looked at the poem, and I started looking, and I go, holy shit, this thing is a sonnet. You I mean, he's not just writing out his poems the way I'm writing out mine. He takes this heartfelt expression and somehow activated it in some way that had been calculated. I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day, all those syllables. He wakes up, it's not morning, it's still dark. What hours, oh, what black hours I have spent this night. What sights you, and then he addresses his heart. What sights you, heart saw, ways you went, and more must in yet longer lights delay. It's going to keep going. And then it's as if he raises his hand, with witness I speak this. Where I say hours mean years, mean life, he's allegorizing. And my lament is cries countless, cries like dead letters sent to dearest him who lives, alas, away. This has all been crafted into an eight, the first eight lines of a Petrarchan sonnet that Hopkins had done something remarkable. He had taken his feeling, his desolation, and he hadn't just simply lived with it in silence. He had crafted into something so that someone else could come along and experience something of what he'd felt. Now later, that came to be a kind of sign to me of the nature of reading lyric poetry. Because 
here was a Jesuit priest writing in the 1880s, 1870s, no, 1860s, I guess, and a thrice removed, as he said, he was exiled to, sent to Ireland. And here's a Jewish kid from Chicago in 1968 in his dorm room at Grinnell College in Iowa. And I read this poem, and it means more to me than anything anyone has said to me. It articulates my own inner feeling. And I was having experience of something that I later discovered in um, other writers, where every now and then you encounter a poem that you respond to so strongly that you feel not as if you were reading it, but as if you had actually written it. And um, there's a very funny thing by the Argentine writer Jorge Luis Borges about this in his first book of poems, where he says and afterward, dear reader, please forgive me for having written these poems first. <laughs> it's only something of an accident that you are the reader and I am the writer, the unsure, ardent writer of these verses. Well, there's something comical about that, apologizing to the reader because you've written the poems first. But there's also something authentic in it, which is I've been the articulation of these and it could have been you. It's an accident that I put this down and you've responded to it. So basically, how to read a poem is a ransacking of the history of poetry to find people saying things that I agree with <laughs> about the nature of reading. And I then go through poems in their encounter that um, teach you how to read them, that introduce you to the nature of poetry. But what I wanted to begin by saying to you is that instead of beginning with the history of poetry, which I think is a mistake, the way to read poetry is with contact. The way to read poetry is by reading poetry and responding to poems you care about. And I believe that all of the devices all of the qualities, all of the genres, all of the subjects of poetry will deliver themselves to you that way. But it all begins in encounter. And sometimes I'm mystified by how all this can be carried by language, and other times I'm amazed by it. Other times I'm appalled at how words, how little we have to go on. Other times I feel the grandeur of it. There's a inscription on a cup in Greece that I saw once that was translated by, attributed to Sappho, mere air these words, but delicious to hear. And that's the thing about poetry, mere air, nothing, but delicious to hear. And the grandeur of poetry, the mystery of poetry, the puzzle of poetry, is that all the human emotions can be delivered to us through these articulated sounds, mere air and that the whole history of poetry is only myriad, these words, delicious to hear, and that this accesses something inside of us, this articulates something inside of us. So what I've done is given you a little handout of three poems, exemplary poems. My idea is that certain poems teach you how to read them, that the poems themselves carry instructions for their own reading. And I thought it might be fun for us, class, um, if we could go through them. Is that okay with, is that okay with you? Great. So this is a poem by Elizabeth Bishop called One Art. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent 
to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. Then look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shouldn't have lied. It's evident the art of losing is not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it like disaster. Um, so, you notice the poem rhymes. Do you see how it rhymes? Where, where are the first rhymes that you see, kids? <laughs> master, disaster. And then fluster and master. Do you know the difference between that kind of between the two kinds of rhymes? Um, master and disaster is what's don't forgive me, I didn't make these terms up. Master and disaster is what's called a masculine rhyme, where or actually a masculine rhyme is one syllable more like spent and meant, an exact rhyme. Um, a plural rhyme, more than one syllable, is a feminine rhyme, and that's master and disaster where two syllables rhyme. You also notice there's a difference between the kinds of rhymes. So, spent and meant is an exact rhyme, and fluster and master is a half rhyme or slant rhyme. If you read Emily Dickinson, you know she's a master of half rhymes. They sound more dissonant, they sound more contemporary. Yeats also loved half rhymes. Faces and houses, he would rhyme, for example. So, um, I've given away, you see, that the first and the third lines rhyme, sometimes with full rhymes like master and disaster, sometimes with half rhymes like fluster and master. And you see that all the first and the third lines rhyme all the way through? Master, disaster, fluster, master, faster, disaster. This is my favorite, my last or. Master, faster, disaster. See that? Do you see the middle lines now? Intent, spent, meant, went. Do you see that they rhyme? The poem's arranged in three-line stanzas. The word stanza in Italian means room. And the, the, my idea is that the stanza is a unit, like the line, and that each stanza is a kind of room. And that the connection of the rhymes from one stanza to the next are linking the rooms. So spent and meant is linking the first room to the second room. And that's linking it to the third. So we're like moving through a lyric dwelling or moving through a house. Do you see that there's a repetition of the lines? The art of losing isn't hard to master. Do you see where that comes back? Yes. The end of the second stanza. The second end of the fourth stanza. The penultimate line of the poem. Then do you see the word disaster? the end of the first stanza, the end of the third stanza, the end of the fifth stanza, end of the poem. 
what we're looking at is a villanelle. It has its form in uh, its roots in Italian folk song, its repetitions. The first and the third line come back as the final lines of each stanza alternating. Bishop changes the form because the first line comes back almost exactly, but the third line doesn't. All that really repeats in it is called disaster. The reason I brought this to you is not because it's a villanelle, because I want to introduce you to traditional forms, which I'm glad to do, but because I want you to see what Elizabeth Bishop does with the villanelle form, which is what's actually most interesting about this. The art of losing isn't hard to master. It's easy to master the art of losing. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. It's no big deal. The things that want to get lost. Then she gives us some instructions. Lose something every day. Accept their fluster of lost door keys. The hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So what kinds of things are those? Fluster of lost door keys. The hour badly spent. They're just quotidian, everyday things. They're not so big. I learned this the hard way because I had a, the bright idea one time that I would try and teach this poem to third graders. So I did. Um, and then I said, so okay, you know, what kind of thing is that, losing your keys? They go, oh, that's huge. <laughs> that's just a terrible, you know, it's a catastrophe if you lose your keys. You I go, oh my God, I can't explain this poem. <laughs> because if you think that losing the keys is the worst thing that can happen to you, I mean, I'm just not going to go anywhere with this. I'm, I'm done as a, I'm done, I'm done as a teacher. <laughs> I'm cooked. How can I get bigger than, oh my God, we're locked out of the house. <laughs> but it taught me something. It taught me something, which is to understand this poem, you have to understand that losing your keys is quotidian. And if you're eight years old, you can't, you don't understand the hierarchy of loss. It all seems catastrophic to you because it is. So you can't really distinguish between what it means to like lose someone you loved and lose your keys yet because you don't have the hierarchy. But this poem is going to establish a hierarchy for us because we've got the lost door keys, the hour badly spent, like the one you're spending now. Um, and then she says, and here's where the poem begins to teach you how to read it, read it. Practice losing farther, losing faster. It's going to get bigger. Places and names and where it was you meant to travel. You can't remember some place you went to go. You can't remember someone's name. There was somewhere you were going to go. You meant to go there. Now it turns out, whoops. You had three children. Maybe you're not going there for a little while, 25 years, something like that. Whoops. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> um, anyway, they're bigger than lost door keys, but not a total catastrophe, not a disaster. And then the first time she says something personal, I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Now this is bigger, right? I mean, it's not just that she, where she meant to travel, but her mother gave her a watch when she died, and now her mother's not alive, and she lost the watch. That means something. And now, I love these houses, and I lost my last house. And then, because this poem is so precise about the hierarchy of loss, she goes, I lost my last, or, well, maybe I should be more exact, my next to last of three loved houses, because I love the one I'm living in right now, actually. But those other houses really meant something to me, too. I love them. I can still get the, the you know, master these losses. Then I lost two cities, lovely ones, vaster some realms I owned, 
two rivers, a continent. How do you lose a continent? You move. You lived in Latin America for 20 years, and now you've come back to the States, and you're not going to Latin America anymore, wherever you were. You lost the continent. And now for the first time, the poem's almost over. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Now, do you see that the losses are building? That the losses have gone from lost door keys to a continent, from the miniature to the gigantic. And all along, she's saying, it's not a disaster. No disaster here, not a disaster, but the losses keep getting bigger. Now, the next thing, by the definition of the poem, I mean, not just because I'm an ingenious reader, which I like to think I am, but because the poem has driven this, the next thing has to be the biggest thing by the structure of the poem, by the geometry of the poem. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. So now after the continent, the poem turns to a love poem. I've lost you. And then fiction writers pay attention. You are summarized in two details. I mean, why do we need 200 pages for this? The joking <laughs> voice, a gesture I love. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> anyway, person summed up. Joking voice, a gesture I love. I shan't have lied. The evidence, the art of losings. Not too hard to master. Well, actually, it's a little hard to master now. It hasn't been hard to possess. Now it's not too hard. Not too hard to master, though it may look like parentheses, italics, exclamation, write it like disaster. She just go, though it may look like disaster, though it may look like. And why does she then say, who's she talking to? Write it. The art of losing is not too hard to master, though it may look like parentheses, write it like disaster. Who's she talking to? Herself. And why does she have to tell herself to write it? Because it's so awful. It's like, she, what? She also has to fulfill the form, but she's not just fulfilling the form. Yes, she's fulfilling the, the form, but in fulfilling the form, She's also forcing herself to face something, to recognize it. It's not a disaster. It's not a disaster. Oh, not exactly a disaster. Uh oh, this looks like, admit it, write it. This feels like a disaster. And the poem is over. Now, the drafts are available of this poem in Vassar College Library. Maybe not all of them, but of that she wrote, but there were, I think, 17 or 18 extant. And you can see that the way she wrote this poem was beginning with the loss of the lover. Losing you, your steely blue eyes, your beautiful blue eyes. And the poem is filled with the thing she's writing, not a poem yet, is filled with self-pity. I'm losing you. I can't bear to lose you. That's how the poem started. And then in the margin, she writes draft three or something, master disaster. And it's like a mad scientist has taken over her emotional life. And she gets the idea that the love poem, which has been the impetus for the poem, is actually going to be held for last. And she understands that the nature of the form can deliver the love poem in a better way than just writing about losing you. And she takes the loss of the you and decides that's the biggest thing. I'm going to have to work up to that, even though it's the thing that started the poem. 
she's going to start with something small and she's going to move bigger and she decides that she can the villanelle can be the form to deli the delivery system now in elizabeth bishop's entire body of work there's only one villanelle it's in her last book one of it's not as if she wrote villanelles the way petrarch wrote sonnets that whatever i do i'm going to put it into the sonnet form the whole world is going to be a sonnet for me not at all she had the one form which she knew about her whole life in poetry and she waited until that moment when the form could deliver be the delivery system for what she wanted for the nature of loss it so happens the villanelle she had made a very good choice because the villanelle is so obsessive in its repetitions that it's almost always about loss if you think about say dylan thomas's do not go gentle into that good night or theodore rutke's the waking it's not the only subject in the 19th century when the villanelle was popularized in english poetry it was a light a form of light verse but in the 20th century it became a form about loss and poets began to recognize that the obsessive repetitions could do something about responding to loss the compulsiveness about it so you see what i mean when i say that poems enact what they're about this poem doesn't just tell you about loss it enacts the feeling of loss so it can be activated in us it enacts it through its subject so the poems are not just thematic sub you know texts about subjects they are dramatizations of experience and that dramatization releases something in us so that we experience that's why it's a dramatic form of literature not an explanatory one it's not like reading an essay it creates the experience inside of you through its structure so even if you don't know what a villanelle is you read this poem you experience one and you experience its song-like qualities and you see that she's structured a poem in a certain kind of way and now you're on your way to understanding poetry you understand a certain kind of form you understand how the line works you understand stanzas you understand what the villanelle can do you've got something there you do this 25 times you know something about the history of poetry quite profound okay you with me class okay um here's a poem that's a poem of understatement here's a poem by pablo neruda translated by robert bly um with a lot of power some inaccuracy called solo la muerte nothing but death there are cemeteries that are lonely graves full of bones that do not make a sound the heart moving through a tunnel in a darkness 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 like a shipwreck we die going into ourselves as though we were drowning inside our hearts as though we live falling out of the skin into the soul and there are corpses feet made of cold and sticky clay death is inside the bones like a barking where there are no dogs coming out from bells somewhere from graves somewhere growing in the damp air like tears or rain sometimes i see alone coffins under sail embarking with the pale dead with women that have dead hair with bakers who are as white as angels and pensive young girls married to notary publics caskets sailing up the vertical river of the dead the river of dark purple moving upstream with sails filled out by the sound of death filled by the sound of death which is silence death arrives among all that sound like a shoe with no foot in it like a suit with no man in it comes and knocks using a ring with no stone in it with no finger in it comes and shouts with no mouth with no tongue with no throat nevertheless its steps can be heard 
and his clothing makes a hush sound like a tree. I'm not sure. I understand only a little. I can hardly see. But it seems to me that singing has the color of damp violets, of violets that are at home in the earth, because the face of death is green, and the look death gives is green, with the penetrating dampness of a violet leaf and the somber color of embittered winter. But death also goes through the world dressed as a broom, lapping the floor, looking for dead bodies. Death is inside the broom. The broom is the tongue of death looking for corpses. It is the needle of death looking for thread. Death is inside the folding cots. It spends its life sleeping on the slow mattresses, in the black blankets, and suddenly breathes out. It blows out a mournful sound that swells the sheets, and the beds go sailing toward a port, where death is waiting, dressed like an admiral. I think it's fair to say when I first read this poem in Residence on Earth, I was very taken by it, but I had absolutely no idea what it meant, except that death is all around us. Solo la, la muerte, a more accurate title would be like death alone or only death. So death is everywhere. But the more I began to look at it, it moves on the wings of a kind of surreal imagery. The question is, can this imagery teach us how to read it? Is there a way to understand this poem just beyond moved by the power of so much death? So do you know what the pathetic fallacy is? Um, this was a, a term coined by Ruskin in his attack on other Victorian poetry, especially Tennyson, where um, poets attributed uh, human emotions to inanimate things. So if you say, the sky is crying, According to Ruskin, that's a violation because that's a pathetic fallacy because you've attributed human emotions to the sky. The sky isn't crying, the sky is raining. You feel like you're crying. Now, the thing about that, you can understand the excesses of Victorian poetry. I happen to like the pathetic fallacy. It's Chinese poetry is filled with pathetic fallacy, although we understand how it can be abused. One of my friends was teaching one of my poems recently and called me and said, we loved your poem, super pathetic fallacy. <laughs> I guess that was a compliment. <laughs> super pathetic fallacy. Um, anyway, this is a pathetic fallacy because there are cemeteries that are lonely. Well, actually, cemeteries themselves are not lonely. They're not anything. Cemeteries are lonely because of the way we feel when we're inside them. And that's how Neruda feels. There are cemeteries that are lonely, graves full of bones that do not make a sound, the heart moving through a tunnel, in a darkness, 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 like a shipwreck we die going into our cells. This is strange. He begins with there are cemeteries that are lonely out there, graves full of bones. We feel lonely when we go through them. There are all these graves that are full of bones. There's no people there. And then the heart moving through a tunnel, that's not out there, but that's inside. Like a shipwreck, we die going into ourselves. He's trying to understand something. The thing he's trying to understand is the de dying seems that there are deaths out there. We're in the cemetery. But it seems to be death seems to be something that comes from inside of us. We die going in out of our own hearts. How is that? As though we're drowning inside our hearts, as though we live falling out of the skin into the soul. So death is both something outside and something inside. And the, the, the way that we are is that subjects become objects. So there are corpses, feet made of cold and sticky clay. Now here's where the poem begins to operate. Here's where it starts to get interesting, because I'm just crazy about this line. Death is inside the bones, like a barking where there are no dogs. That's just an amazing, amazing, where do you think of that? 
Now, when you first hear that, you go, that's a crazy good line, but what does it mean? I'm going to show you how later in the poem, this line's going to be completely explicable to you. It's mysterious, but it's going to be completely understandable. Like a barking where there are no dogs, coming out from bells somewhere, from graves somewhere, growing in the damp air like tears or rain. It's coming from somewhere, there's the barking, but there are no dogs there to do the barking. Then he sort of sees a procession. Sometimes I see alone coffins under sail, embarking with the pale dead, with women that have dead hair, with bakers who are as white as angels, and pensive young girls married to notary publics. I think that's Pablo Neruda's idea of a joke. <laughs> I mean, even, you know, even these dreamy girls married to these practical men, you know, everyone's going. You can be totally practical, like these dudes, or you can be totally dreamy and romantic, like these women, and they're all going too. And there are the bakers, look at them, covered with flour. They look like angels. They're going out there too. Caskets sailing up the vertical river of the dead, the river of dark purple, moving upstream with sails filled out by the sound of death, filled by the sound of death, which is silence. So this is the mystery. What is this death? It creates a sound, but the sound of it is silence. I see people going up, but I don't see anything. And now here's where the imagery is going to go in full operation. And this is where I think it teaches you how to read it. Death arrives among all that sound like a shoe with no foot in it, like a suit with no man in it. So what's a shoe with no foot in it? You expect the shoe to have a person's foot in it. So you give us, the, it's an object. You take the shoe, you don't say, but he doesn't say like an empty shoe. He says like a shoe with no foot in it. Then he goes further, like a suit with no man in it. You expect the suit to have a man inside of it when you see them walking along. Now, you give us the suit, you don't give us the man, you take away the man. So what he's doing is he's giving us the object, like the shoe, he's taking away the person. Like a shoe with no foot in it, like a suit, give us a suit, take away the man. He's going to operate by subtraction. He's going to give us something, he's going to take it away to show what death does. Comes and knocks. It comes and makes a sound using a ring. What kind of ring is that? He's going to give you the ring and he's going to take away the stone. And then he's going to take away the finger. He's going to give you the ring. He's going to take a double subtraction. Then he's going to go further. He's going to go, comes and shouts. It's going to make a noise. Then with no mouth, with no tongue, with no throat. He's going to take away three things. So death arrives among all that sound, like a barking where there's no dog. We don't know how to understand that first, but now we do. He gives us the barking, and he takes away the dog. It's exactly parallel to giving us the shoe. It's maybe a little more mysterious, but it's like giving us the shoe and taking away the foot, or giving us the suit and taking away the man. Now we understand how the imagery is operating. Nevertheless, even though it's silent, its steps can be heard, and its clothing makes a hush sound like a tree. Now, the modernists had an idea that the poet was above the poem, impersonal, indifferent, making his creation. Pablo Neruda is not like that. He's inside of it. I'm not sure. I only understand only a little. I can hardly see. He's like walking through it too. It seems to me it's singing has the color of damp violets. Now, what is singing that has color of damp violets? I don't know. But then he's going to go further. He's going to explain that to us. Of violets that are home in the earth. Why? Because the face of death is green. And the look death gives is green. Now, usually we think of death being gray. We don't think of it being green. 
So you go, why is he saying death is green? Well, the look death gives is green. Why? With the penetrating dampness of a violet leaf and the somber color of embittered winter. Because in the green leaf, he sees what's coming. Because in, in the world of this poem, in the despair of Pablo Neruda, solo la muerte, even spring has in it the root, the, grant, the dampness of what's coming, the future winter. Death also goes to the world dressed as a broom. How's that, Pablo? Well, lapping the floor, looking for dead bodies. Death is inside the broom. The broom is the tongue of death looking for corpses. It's the needle of death looking for thread. I'm going to show you that I can show you that death is in anything now. And I'm going to just prove it to you. And then he's going to make this romantic association between death and sleep. Death is inside the folding cots. It spends its life sleeping on the slow mattresses and the black banklets, blankets and suddenly breathes out. It blows out a mournful sound that swells the sheets, and the beds go sailing toward a port where death is waiting, dressed like an admiral. There he is, letting us in. Strange poem, completely surreal poem, but a surrealism that has a kind of logic to it. And the logic moves on the, on, on, on the wings of its imagery. So I think now you understand, or I do, how I feel to my own satisfaction that I have a way to think about a line, which I first just loved, but I couldn't, didn't know how to think about, like, death is inside the bones like a barking where there are no dogs. Seemed like just a surreal line to me. But once you see how the imagery works, then you get, you, you, you get the full operation of it. Okay, you with me? Okay, let's go to the Yuri Orten poem, a small elegy. He's a Czech poet, so this is basically I'm giving you a, the method of my book, How to Read a Poem, which is the three poem method, three poems per hour, three a chapter, which is what we can handle. One of my friends had, a, had said, saw it and said, I get it totally, um, your choice of poems. A poem everyone knows, a poem some people know, a poem only you know. <laughs> so that's the strategy, basically. Poem Elizabeth Bishop, everyone knows it. A poem some people know, Pablo Neruda, an obscure Czech poet that no one's heard of. That's my method. My friends have left. Far away, my darling is asleep. Outside, it's as dark as pitch. I'm saying words to myself, words that are white in the lamplight. And when I'm half asleep, I begin to think about my mother, autumnal recollection. Really under the cover of winter, it's as if I know everything, even what my mother's doing now. She's at home in the kitchen. She has a small child stove toward which the wooden rocking horse can trot. She has a small child stove, the sort nobody uses today, but she basks in its heat. Mother, my diminutive mom. She sits quietly, hands folded, and thinks about my father, who died years ago. And then she's skinning fruit for me. I'm in the room, sitting right next to her, You've got to see us, God, you bully who took so much. How dark it is outside. What was I going to say? Oh, yes, now I remember. Because of all those hours, I slept soundly through calm nights. Because of all the loved ones who are deep in dreams. Now, when everything's running short, I can't stand being here by myself. The lamplight's too strong. I'm so ingrained on the headland. I will not live long. So he's with other people. He's the sort of guy that has friends. It's not that he doesn't have any friends. My friends have left. Far away, my darling is asleep. He has a darling. She's sleeping over there. 
outside its darkest pitch. In here I'm saying words to myself. I'm talking to myself. Words that are white in the lamplight. And when I'm half asleep, I begin to think about my mother. This is a completely naturalistic poem. So you see the light. He's turning on the light. Outside it's dark. In here it's light. I'm thinking the words are white. But it's also, it takes on a kind of symbolic resonance. Because the light is like the white of consciousness. Suddenly everything's being illuminated. I'm drifting along. And I'm thinking about my mother. Autotumnal recollection. So if I don't know everything now, even what my mother's doing now, She's over there in the country. She's at home in the kitchen. And now it's getting reversed. She's doing something like a small child. She has a small child stove toward which the wooden rocking horse can trot. She has a small child stove, the sort nobody uses today. She basks in its heat. Mother, my diminutive mom. So that was an interesting choice. I wondered about it so because I, I wanted to write about this poem. And I, I called some Czech, a Czech friend. And what it is in, in Czech is mama minku which means like my little mother, my little mommy, basically, which turns out in Czech is very tender, but in English sounds terrible. It just sounds so sentimental. So what Lynn Coffin did was make it my diminutive mom. What it means is my small mother. You know, the mother who raised me is now so small and I'm so much bigger than she is. She's like a child. She sits quietly, hands folded, and thinks about my father who died years ago. And now this is the moment that I brought this poem to you for. Because I wanted you to see this. And then she is skinning fruit for me. I'm in the room, sitting right next to her. Do you notice the change of tense? She's out there. It's all the present. And now she's skinning fruit for me. I'm in the room. When is that taking place? He's in Prague. She's in the country. And now he thinks she's skinning fruit for me. How old is he? He's a child again, but it's in the present tense. So he's here, he's in Prague, she's in the country, but also he's been transported back in the scene, thinking about his mother at the stove, being with her, thinking about what she's doing, thinking about her father sitting there. Suddenly, he's transported back. Proust calls this involuntary memory. You remember the, the chapter where he eats the petite Madeleine, and suddenly his whole childhood unravels. Back, all the streets of Cambrai. Well, that's what's happening here. It's involuntary. Suddenly, she's, he's back there, and she's getting fruit for me. I'm in the room, sitting right next to her. Then, he's, then he says something else. You've got to see us. God, you bully who took so much. I don't know why I'm so crazy about calling God a bully, but maybe it's from reading, reading the Hebrew Bible too much. Um, anyway, when is he saying that? Is he eight-year-old again? Now he's back. So now he's in two places, right? He's back with her, skinning fruit. She's skinning fruit for him the way he was when he was a child. And now he's realized, well, I'm not there. I'm there and I'm not there because everything's been gone, including my father who died years ago. My childhood is erased. You bully God who took so much away from us. How could you do that? And then he looks up and he goes, how dark it is outside. What was I going to say? He gets lost. And I think the reason he gets lost is not just because he's just forgetful. It's because he's distracted by being two places at once. And he's thinking about being with his mother. And then he's thinking about how much he's lost. And it's over the collision of it is too much for him. And he looks up and he sees how dark it is. And now he's completely 
So they say in Yiddish for klemt. He's like, whoa, what was I going to say? I've lost my way. And then he remembers. And now it's like a Shakespeare sonnet. Oh, yes, now I remember. And it's a kind of logic. What? Because. Because of all those hours I slept soundly through calm nights. That's how it used to be. Because all the loved ones who are deep in dreams, back there, my partner, my friends, now, when everything's running short, I can't stand being here by myself. The lamplight's too strong. In other words, the light is too great of what I'm understanding, not just what I'm seeing. It's too overwhelming to me. Suddenly I can't be stand being here by myself because I used to sleep soundly. How could I have slept soundly? How could I have been so calm when everything was in peril? I can't stand it anymore. It's showing me too much. And then he jumps. I'm sowing grain on the headland. Do you know what a headland is? What is it? Right, it's a piece of land that juts out into the water. So what would it be like to sow grain on the headland? No chance that it will grow. You put grain down there and the wind is just going to blow it apart. That's what my life is. And then there's a recognition of all this. It seems to come out of nowhere and yet has been anticipated. I will not live long. Which parenthetically turned out to be true soon after he, after he wrote this. But there's a kind of revelation in the poem, the logic all leading to this, beginning with my friends and ending with, I'm not going to live long. And it takes you through it, through the inaction of the verbs and being in two places at once, through voluntary and through involuntary memory.